Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and success strategies. I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by RedIQ.com. If you're in the apartment industry, you've got to check it out and take static information and put it into software that you can make great decisions, and it does it almost magically and quickly. It's RedIQ.com. Today we're talking about industrial real estate, and industrial real estate's really been uh, the darling sector. It used to be the dirty shoe sector that didn't have much growth back in the day, and uh, but now it's been uh, just darling. So, but what's what's going on with industrial? What's going on with smaller properties? Is uh, and, and are we building too much? We've certainly seen a lot of new supply, and how are tariffs going to impact it? And then some people are saying, are we close to the end of a cycle? How might that impact industrial real estate? Please welcome my guest. It's KC Conway. He's chief economist with CCIM. He's also director of the Alabama Center for Real Estate, and he's here in Studio One. KC, great to see you again, yeah, sir. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> so, if you could start us out, I mean, everyone I think realizes that industrial property performance has just been doing well, but we have seen a lot of new supply. How is it really performing? Yeah, so it's uh, it's continuing to do very good. I tell folks that I think we're still like in the first or second inning of, of really the boom in industrial. Uh, a lot of it is driven by really us changing our economy from a shop and pickup, I go to the mall and bring it home, to hey, I'm online at you know midnight and I want it delivered to me by nine o'clock the next morning. Um, and so it's we're really shifting to a shop online and deliver it to me economy. And we're really in the early phases of that. Amazon figured it out with music and books and destroying the malls. And now they're gonna go do the same with neighborhood grocery anchored centers and, and grocery automobiles. Um, they're even gonna go into digital currency if they get their way with Congress. Yeah. So we're really in the early stages. And, and really what I tell people is the new big box in retail is a warehouse box. And everything we're gonna do is come through some sort of centralized fulfillment. And we're really at the early phases of that. So. Uh, my friends at Colliers, uh, they released this week their nationwide quarter two report. And um, I was really excited. They had, you know, first of all, I like it when someone gives a report and they put three graphics or four graphics on the front that give you the answers to everything you need to read. Right. <laughs> so there were four graphics and they were pretty impressive. So uh, the number of decades they've been tracking the top 50 to 75 industrial markets in the United States, first time ever below 5% average vacancy rate for the top 50 to 75 markets it was 4.9%. Second, first time the average asking rent for warehouse industrial space surpassed six bucks a square foot by just a little, six dollars and a penny, but that, hey, that penny matters, so we can say over six bucks. Um, and uh, so that was the second one. And the third one was a record amount of uh, warehouse industrial space under construction, over 300 million square feet. The vacancy rate's low, the rents are going up, that means you need to build some more. And most of that is going to fill the online activity that's occurring. So I think we're in the early innings, a long, long way to go. And some markets I see a lot of new construction. We're not building too much? No, so, you know, industrial we forget, it generally goes up pretty quick, a lot quicker than any other property type. So it's construction delivery cycle, you're not finishing a lot of interior space. So, you know, whether it's a tilt up or the you know, biggest issue today is site preparation. So some good developers got, you know, landed guys got the site ready to go. You know, you could be looking at a 12 to 18 month period of time to put that asset up. So not a long lead delivery. We generally don't put many, you know, million to two million square foot buildings out there for spec, but what we're finding 
is when companies that are shifting online decide, hey, I need an asset, they can't find it. So the market is telegraphing to the development community, we need some spec inventory. In fact, if you talk to most port directors, Jim Newsom at South Carolina or the Georgia Port Authority, they say their number one challenge is we have no spec inventory. So if a new port user is coming in to use their port, and they say, that's great, we'll use you, where's the million or two million square foot we need to do, you know, to do di distribution business? There's nothing in, in the inventory. Yeah. So that's really been an impediment. We, we've got to watch it um, a little bit here, but I say you watch those forward indicators, you look at vacancy, you look at absorption, you look at rents, and when those start to turn, you've probably got early signs that you're doing too much, but I don't see any of those signs yet. Yeah, well it must be interesting to build a million square foot plus spec building and have it pretty and brand new and walk in there and see it vacant. And <laughs> like, did I really do this? But you know, the, the spec building is industrial. I, you know, I never thought of, of industrial guys uh, as doing spec buildings back in the day, uh, but now I just see so much of it. But then you'll see you know, uh, a lease happen for a million square feet and a vacant building's gone. Yeah. Right? yeah, it's amazing. The other thing that's in that spec that I'll throw out there, a lot of people, especially the you know, I won't use any names, but the data analytic collectors mm -hmm. out there, they'll classify something under construction as spec mm -hmm. because they don't know who the tenant's gonna be yet in the and the, the brokerage entity that's representing them is under a confidentiality not to reveal that, mm -hmm. hey, this is gonna be a new Amazon facility or a new FedEx or Walmart or Target because they don't want that known. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what you'll see is these assets that are under construction really are, they, they have an intended user. They just want it quiet for a year or so until they take occupancy. So I would say as much as half of this stuff that's classified as spec really is not spec. There's a tenant going in there. Yeah, and uh, some people are concerned about, about the tariffs and the end of the cycle. First of all, tariffs, good thing, bad thing for industrial, short term, long term? <laughs> so it's, it really is not gonna be a big impact on industrial, and here's why. So if we have tariffs, and you're a manufacturer, you're concerned about supply chain, and you're, you wanna make sure you don't have a disruption in your manufacturing process. So if you suspect you're going from 10 to 25%, or you know a year ago, zero to 10%, what do you do before the actual implementation? you load up, you stockpile. So we've been seeing that for over a year from the 10% now to the 25%, you see that load up. The second thing that you see is really what manufacturers and industry are, are realizing, this came out in the Procter & Gamble earnings this morning, they're refiguring supply chain. So if I'm a manufacturer, and let's say previously something was made 100% in China, well I maybe only make 85% of it in China, and I move that last phase of manufacturing to say, South Korea, Vietnam, Malaysia, and now since that's the last component that completes the manufacturing, now it's uh, South Korea, Vietnamese, um, the, the games that can be played with where things come in from, where we move steel and everything else, we're, we're, we're learning that the manufacturing and corporate world is really good at the supply chain game, and they can move it around. So we're gonna see, I think, really more stuff stockpiled in warehouses to mitigate the risk of supply chain disruption. And when you, the other thing you look at in these warehouses, you go back early in our careers, what, two years ago? <laughs> at a zero or two zeros, right? <laughs> we were back there when the Ark was built. It was the first big <laughs> container ship. <laughs> and they were wasting it on animals. But anyway, if you look at these, uh, if you look at these uh, constructions of these warehouses today, in our early career, a warehouse operated maybe five days a week, maybe eight to 10, 12 hours a day. You look at these facilities today, they're operating 24 seven. 
So um, doing all kinds of fulfillment. So the value of these assets are worth a whole lot more. They're being utilized more. So whenever I hear someone cringe, it, that deal just sold at a five cap rate. And I said, yeah, that same warehouse five years ago was only used five days a week. Now it's seven days a week, 24 seven. The business is able to do so much more in that warehouse. That warehouse is worth more to them. The yeah. churn is there. Yeah. What about onshoring? How about businesses bringing back manufacturing and things back to the U.S.? Is it really happening? It really is. So I put a piece out. I have a, a weekly insight I do on Wednesdays where the university, hopefully they don't read it and they let me go off script. <laughs> the banks would never let me do that <laughs> or the regulators. But anyway, a couple of weeks ago in my um, Wednesday weekly insight on our website, um, I did a piece that last year was a record year for reshoring of companies back to the United States. We had over 1,380, 1,389 companies reshore their businesses back here to the United States. And so if you go back to 2010 when it was an all-time low and everybody was leaving the place, <laughs> now we've got them coming back. So it's a real, real success story. And a lot of people think, well, they're all going to big marketplaces, they're going to Texas, they're going to Florida, and it really isn't. So uh, last month, um, there was a study that was put out um, by Industry Week, they covered it, in which they covered the reshoring of businesses in the United States and where manufacturers relocating. And they ranked the top 10 places to best locate a new manufacturing facility. And a third of them were all here in the Southeast, but they really were generally spread across the country, and here's what surprised a lot of people, in smaller secondary and tertiary markets. Mm. They were in cities that were primarily under 300,000 people in population. They were places like Ogden, Utah, they're done with cannabis in Denver, <laughs> going over to Utah. They were places like Talladega, Alabama. So when they build those Honda minivans in Alabama, they take them out to the test track to see if they'll go at least 65 miles an hour <laughs> and, and get merged in Atlanta traffic here. Um, they were places like Greenville, South Carolina and Greenville, North Carolina. So manufacturing is coming back. 1,389 companies last year. Uh, the tariffs sure aren't slowing that down. The change in supply chain uh, is really working for us. Yeah, oh, that's great. And uh, there's been some interesting new um, construction in industrial properties. <laughs> um, and then also I want your ideas on the cycle and where we are and what that means for, for everybody, including industrial real estate. We'll take a short break. Stay with us. We'll have more with Casey Conway, the Chief Economist with CCIM. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? You're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty. Check out bullrealty.com for customized asset and occupancy solutions or give me a call personally. Today we're talking about industrial real estate. My guest is KC Conway. He's chief economist with CCIM. And KC, a lot of people are concerned about the cycle. We've had a wonderful 10-year run here. Uh, some people think we're at the 
maybe we got to be getting close to the end of the cycle here somewhere, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm hearing people say things could change in 2020. Heck, that's 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 a year away. What do you think, and, and what's the impact on industrial? Yes, yeah, so what I would say is things could change next November, uh, the elections. <laughs> but mm -hmm. as far as the fundamentals of the economy, um, and we have a little thing going on today and tomorrow, the Fed meeting to, if you can just imagine this, cut interest rates. This isn't 2008 again. <laughs> um, and it has nothing to do with our economy and needing to stimulate the economy. I mean, we just had the first read on second quarter GDP. It wasn't the two and a half to three that we were hoping for, but it was 2.1. The good news in that, inventories declined. That means we got to fill up those warehouses with stuff for the holiday season. The consumer was incredibly strong. The numbers on that were over 4% growth in consumer spending and, and related. So consumers not grumpy or unhappy. They're going to spend like the Dickens this month on back to school stuff. Um, so, you know, if you look at it, GDP is good. We're still producing on average 175,000 jobs a month. Um, we'll get a new jobs number this, this Friday. I don't think it'll be over 200. It never really is in July. August number can get crazy because they can't figure out whether the teachers were off work or back to work and where'd all the college students go. So jobs are fine. We have more, we have more job openings mm -hmm. than we do have unemployed people in this country. We're seeing people come back to the workforce. We're seeing labor participation rate rise. We're seeing home prices go up. We're seeing wage growth at 3%. I mean, does that sound like 2018? Does that sound like we need a rate cut? Absolutely not. So the fundamentals are, are very good there. The, the good thing we have going for us in commercial real estate, and really even residential, is we're not overbuilding. Yeah. So you look at single family housing, right? We can barely struggle to build a million one units, about 400,000 of those are multifamily. That's nothing like the 800,000 we did in the 80s a year, um, or even 600,000 um, before the financial crisis. So we're not overbuilding housing. Builders and developers have realized that the grocery store model doesn't work. I'll make up for it on volume. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'll take all this risk and make a 2% margin. They said, no, I'm just not going to build and take that much risk and have to use more equity because the banks won't still lend to me because mm -hmm. uh, I'm still in that awful thing called commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. So we're not overbuilding. You look at the commercial real estate property types. We don't, we're not building spec office buildings. You've got to have lead tenants or or whatnot. We're all skeptical of, you know, of the co-working issue. Is it real or not going to be real? Uh, you look at industrial. Look at the numbers. Vacancy, absorption, rising rents. We're at the early phase of really shifting everything from online and retail really into a warehouse box. So I feel very good at that. So why is the Fed going to cut rates? The Fed's going to cut rates because they weren't happy with their two roles. So their two primary roles given to them by Congress are price stability and maximum uh, employment. They said, we're bored with that. We want to take on a third one. We, we exported this thing called quantitative easing to the rest of the world, and they've gone nuts with it. And so we're paying too much of a premium on our debt uh, that we issue compared to the rest of the world. So this will knock your socks off. We have $13 trillion of sovereign debt yielding a negative number right now, which means you give them 100 bucks, and they'll give you maybe 85 or 90 back after five or 10 years. <laughs> How do you like that deal? Yeah. Most all of Europe, Japan, it's nuts. It's one in four of every um, sovereign debt dollar is negative yielding. So if you're the United States and we're the growth market in the world, we're the only place to live in growth, and you're offering somebody a 2% yield on their bond in a currency or assets that aren't devaluating versus you're in an economy where it's not growing, your currency is devaluing, what do you do? You just throw all this cash in the United States. So the Fed is saying, we gotta, we gotta prick that. And because it's creating asset bubbles. The stock market's rising too much. Commercial real estate prices are rising too much because we're too attractive. <laughs> and so they think that we're going to reverse engineer QE by doing more QE. 
I just think this whole QE experiment eventually ends very badly, but that's why the Fed's doing it. It's their concern about this flow of capital into the U.S. and trying to slow it because we're paying too good a premium. And most net. people in commercial real estate, real estate in general, kind of like the ideas of, of lower rates. Uh, it, where's the challenge? So I think what folks need to realize is what happens if you're a developer, if you're an investor, your real actual rate isn't gonna collapse. Because yeah. what do we do? We increase the spread because everybody knows if I've gotta hedge that loan or I gotta put a swap against it, I'm worried that they're gonna change their mind. I mean, look at where we were a year ago. You know, we're heading to four rate hikes, and now we're talking three or four rate cuts this year in a 12-month period of time? Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously. So, you know, we, that's why when, when appraisers always tell me I look at the spread between the 10-year and, you know, and the, and the cap rate, and it should always be 300 basis points, I want to just, you know, strangle them. <laughs> those, those, those comparisons and metrics are long gone. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the debt market, in the equity market, they're looking for an all-in yield, mm -hmm. and they don't care what that, what that treasury is bouncing around. They're still going to get their two or 300 basis point spread. Yeah. So negative impact on commercial real estate if rates are reduced some, maybe not much impact at all? Yeah, it's yeah. it's not. It might help the housing market a little bit. You know, yeah. we're, we get back to mortgage rates where we were before all of this yeah. Fed hiking. Um, so that stimulates some things, makes retail work. Consumers buy more, the warehouses fill up more. So there's, there's that aspect. Um, retail, um, our problem in retail is that we're over leveraged. It's not Amazon or online sales. We've only got 10% of our economy in online sales. Mm -hmm. You look at most retailers that are in trouble, it's because they got over leveraged. Going back to the 1980s, KKR, leveraged buyouts, we're still living through that. Why, why is a Barnes and Noble still alive mm -hmm. and functioning and a Toys R Us not or trying to reinvent itself? Toys R Us was just leveraged to the gills mm -hmm. with debt and um, Barnes & Noble wasn't. So they've had opportunity to not have to, you know, fret over creditors and, and, and re-experiment with what they're doing. So what I, do don't, you, I don't see us so, in that shape. So what do you think about the, the cycle now? Are, are you on the bandwagon of 2020? We're going to see some adjustment here? So it's, it's a real wild card with the elections. If it were an election year, I'd say I, I, I could see this running another two, three years. Um, the elections are a wild card uh, out there. Um, you look at what's going on. I, I sure don't want to. I'm going on permanent summer vacation next year because I don't want to be around during either political convention. <laughs> it's it's going to be very. Um, it's not going to be entertaining. It's just going to be like a, you know, uh, all-star wrestling match <laughs> in this corner and that corner and yeah. crazy mass and throw around. The fundamentals are there for this to go another two or three years. They really are. No overbuilding. Um, ample capital. We got plenty of capital. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can't make a deal work today with a two and a half to sub 3% 10 year treasury, you just need to get out of real estate. You don't get it at all, just go yeah. away. Um, it, it, it's, it's just not that, not that difficult and the fundamentals are good. Um, we've got rising rents, lowing vacancy, capital that loves you, the bank's needing more loan growth, so they're starting to love commercial real estate a little bit more. Life companies are there, securization market's wide open. You know, I, here's what I think is the real risk. So as we're building product today, and you've got a construction loan, Construction costs are rising during that two-year period a lot more than your NOI or your pro forma rents are going to be. So we're seeing construction costs rise 10 to 15% a year right now, primarily because we're rebuilding from five category three or four hurricanes. There's no labor. There's no materials. If we have another active hurricane season this year, we're in real trouble. So if you're a developer, your biggest risk needs to be cost overruns, material order changes, labor shortages, not delivering the project on time, having to go into your interest reserve. So I think the lenders, I was talking to the bank regulators yesterday in Washington, D.C., they're clueless about construction loan risk. Mm -hmm. So that deal that you did is a 75 or 80% loan-to-cost deal and, and whatnot, 
you've averaged along with two, 3% rent increase, but your construction costs are up over 20%. You now need to move that out of the bank into a permanent loan. Mm -hmm. And I think your ability to move into the permanent debt market is gonna be more challenging 24 months out because the asset isn't gonna be there in the price. In the price. You just can't change the performance and say, well, I'll just charge more rents because costs went up 20%. Yep. We're, we're seeing in the commercial property price indices, the two I track that I think are really good, RCAs, Real Capital Analytics, and they do it market level by market and property type, and then Green Street um, uh, Advisors does a good one. And what they're showing is all that CPI is flattening. We just can't get as much juice. Businesses are squeezed. We got all kinds of margin pressures and efficiencies. So I don't see NOI going negative, but I see it growing a lot less, like low single digits. And I see the cost to replace these assets or build them going up at you know 15 to 20% a year. That's the big risk. Yeah, and that would be interesting, the impact of that rising construction cost on the value of, of, of existing supply. And it, 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 we would think it would slow down new supply yeah. um, and, and help existing supply. So, so you think that we have two or three years of good fundamentals, but the wild card is election year. Yeah, I mean, look, at, mm -hmm. we passed a tax act in 2017 that mm -hmm. was like five Christmases at one time for real estate. Mm -hmm. We really benefited. Mm -hmm. We're just getting into the, the rhythm mode of opportunity mm -hmm. zones. Everything's, the rules are kind of out. I was was at Harvard a couple of weeks ago with Steve Glickman, who was one of the original architects of the program. And it was really interesting to hear him because he explained, you know, we're trying to understand all these year dates in the opportunity zones, like you've only got seven year deferral on your capital gain and you gotta, you know, hold the asset for 10 years. And why did they pick those numbers? And what was fascinating was it all had to do with how the Congressional Budget Office scores the tax act. So by holding something for 10 years, with no capital gains, there's no impact on the economy, on the budget, so it scores zero. But if you go longer than that, now there's an impact. If you do the deferral longer than seven years and don't recapture some of it, then you've got a problem. So all of this stuff in opportunity zones, the dates, all had to do with how things get scored in the Congressional yeah. Budget Office. Yeah. So um, you know, I, I think there's just a lot of other stuff going, going on. The fundamentals are there. The fundamental change we have in retail, like I said, really the shift to e-commerce and online is something that's gonna drive industrial for years to come. You know, we're only 10% of retail sales. My latest report showed that I see that doubling over the next three to five years, going to 20%. And I think we could end up somewhere near 30, 40% before we're all said and done. Wow. And you mentioned rising cost on, on, on all properties, but industrial as well. And, and some of that's based on uh, the new industrial properties aren't uh, <laughs> what our dad or grandpa built, are they? No, these are like law firm finished out offices. Yeah. The construction, um, features and design in industrial today is nothing like what we grew up, you know, where you just go plow some dirt out in an industrial zone or, you know, that the local economy had done and tilt up some concrete walls and put a, a you know, a, a built up composition roof and away you go with maybe 5% office. These are pretty high tech facilities. So let's start at the foundation. You're looking at the concrete floor. These all have electronics in them today, so they can run robotic forklifts and everything else. So the new flooring system is something like a ductile concrete flooring where it doesn't have the, the, the seams and the kind of uh, curling that occurs in concrete that messes up electronics and the forklifts. So that flooring is more expensive than a traditional one. The roofs we're putting, because of energy efficiency, we're putting more skylights and things in the roofs so the membrane system is more complicated, it's got more holes in it. Um, the technology in these things for the conveyor systems, the electric loads, all that stuff is a lot more. So I shared with you earlier, you know, I'm on a, on a, 
a public REIT that is a one of the landlords for FedEx, and so we get the opportunity to, to buy and, and, and provide a few of their their new e-commerce buildings. And, and what we see is every new building year after year goes up very substantially in construction costs. And we're seeing this as well when I do work or, or work with colleagues on Amazon or Home Depot or Walmart. A building that used to cost 60 to 80 bucks a square foot to build, with all the bells and whistles today to do e-commerce right and operate 24-7, that bet building today is 100, 125 bucks a square foot. Wow. And the amount of land that's needed is different. We used to build these things on three to four to one land or building ratios. Try seven to one now for all the e-commerce, the extra truck park packing, the bigger courtyards, planning for autonomous trucking. All of that's changing. And now we're seeing, because the land's so expensive and scarce in big markets like New York, New Jersey, LA, Long Beach, we're seeing industrial warehousing going back to something that Sears created in the 1930s, and that's vertical warehouses. Mm -hmm. So there's a great example in um, the Red Hook market of Brooklyn that, um, uh, uh, that's being done by Goldman Sachs and a property developer that's a vertical modern e-commerce warehouse. And it has different ramps that go to different levels. So if my level is Amazon, I'm on the third level, my ramp comes up there, I can do all my stuff in 200,000 square feet. If the second level is Walmart or Target, you know, then Amazon can spy on them below <laughs> and they can have their ramps. And that thing cuts the land of building back to three or four to one. That thing is gonna cost probably 200 bucks a square foot to build. Wow. So this isn't your father's or grandfather's or caveman's industrial building. This, caveman. is, this is very expensive stuff. And I guess that's gonna be built fairly close to the large cities. It is, like they're, they're billing it as, it'll be the tallest industrial distribution center in the East Coast mm -hmm. with the closest, fastest, last mile fulfillment. So yeah. right there in Brooklyn, it'll be able to do everybody within about two hours is, yeah. their, is their objective. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, what would you leave our audience with, Casey, related to industrial real estate and kind of a forward forecast, if you will? Yeah, so I would say, look, at if you're in another property type, reclassified in your marketing as warehouse. So if it's multifamily, <laughs> you're warehousing people. Uh, the capital and everybody loves warehouse, so just yeah. change your property classification to warehouse. Yeah. Second thing is we're very early in the transition from a shop and pickup to an online order and deliver to me. This is something that's gonna take us more than a decade to do. We're just beginning to figure autonomous trucking out. In fact, Florida just passed legislation to become the first state that by next year, will allow full use of autonomous trucking statewide. They dealt with the liability issues, the infrastructure, all that type stuff. So Florida will become very attractive. And we're seeing major companies like Home Depot go into Central Florida, anybody that's listening from Winter Haven and Central Florida, it's really the Inland Empire of California. Hmm. We're also seeing through the reshoring, manufacturing and supply chain are looking for affordability. Mm -hmm. These warehouse, e-commerce, and manufacturing workers make 20 bucks an hour or less, and they need to be in affordable markets. And so we're seeing places, whether it's Ogden, Utah, Rockford, Illinois, Talladega, Alabama, Greenville, South Carolina, North Carolina, these are the under 300,000 population, but they have really good logistics infrastructure. They can tie into the rail, intermodal rail. They know their connectivity to ports, uh, and they have workforce affordability. They can afford to own a home. So really pay attention to the logistics infrastructure. In fact, I would say that's the one measure that most appraisers and analysts don't look at today. They don't have a, a module that looks at logistics infrastructure you know, metrics in there. And then I say the innovation in the product and industrial is gonna be mind boggling. The last one, so those of you that may own or have clients with older warehouse industrial, don't fret. It's still very much loved. We don't build any new multi-tenant, you know, 10 to 20,000 square foot bay industrial. 
we benefit here in Atlanta. We have a great colleague we know at King Industrial, Sim Dowdy. They study the Atlanta market, 750 million square feet. 80% of all the leasing and, and sale transactions are to properties that are under 25,000 square feet. So we have a lot of these smaller businesses that are trying e-commerce, that are experimenting. They're terrified of Amazon, so they're going to new fulfillment platforms like Shopify. And so we're gonna see a lot of change, but these well-located, low clear ceiling height, in town, close in the infrastructure, older warehouses, the numbers are incredible. There's almost no vacancy. And the prices now are, we're seeing 50, 60 bucks a square foot for this older stuff. Yeah. So don't give up on your older industrial. Final question for you, Casey. Uh, let's say that uh, we do have a recession come in 2020 or 21 or 23. I think investors out there and developers, lenders, offices looking for, well, what's most resistant to um, a change in economy uh, like that when it comes to sector. You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of growth expected to continue on the industrial side, on the warehousing and last mile and, and all that. When you look at the, the various sectors, which sectors do you feel most comfortable with in a downturn at this point? Yeah, so the answer might surprise you. <laughs> so as long as everybody classifies everything as warehouse, we're all good. <laughs> uh, even hotels, we're, 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 we're nightly warehousing people in yeah. hotels. So I think industrial is because of what's driving it. Mm -hmm. And what's really driving it is the new big box, the new department store, the new grocery store, it's all in a warehouse. It's all about fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So we're early in that transition and phase. What, um, what I would look at there is, look, we've just celebrated 120 months all right, so this is the last day. We'll have 121 months, the longest recovery ever. Um, we've had a recession every decade since 1857. So we're overdue. It's like you're living in Southern California and you're 100 years overdue for a big earthquake. It's, it's gonna happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> but we don't know when. I think as we go into this next recession, this could be a more normal short cycle recession. Any of the phony things that we had in the last really bad ones of the Great Recession, we had phony mortgages with subprime, um, we had overbuilding, even in commercial real estate, because commercial real estate was following the rooftops. We hadn't really even invented online e-commerce yet. Amazon had figured out books and music, but hadn't really totally destroyed them all yet, now that they have. Smartphones didn't really even exist until 12 years ago. So when you think of the pace of the technology, autonomous trucking, I mean, we're already, Walmart's already moving autonomous trucks across the country. UPS is experimenting with them between Phoenix and Dallas. I mean, it, it, all this stuff is happening. It's happening real time and at a quicker pace than we all thought. And so I think the, the biggest challenge for us to look at are twofold. You've really got to understand and put back front and center highest and best use analysis. So when you're out there looking at a building, you know, you really need to think through what, what is the highest and best use? What's the highest and best use for an empty department store, you know, or a mall that's gone empty? Well, we did one at Monmouth in outside Dallas in uh, Mesquite, Texas, and we made it into a, a fulfillment center for FedEx, the whole mall, 800,000 square feet, mm -hmm. and it's working out great. In Nashville, they converted 100 Oaks Mall to all medical with Vanderbilt University. So we've got to go back. We haven't really taught highest and best use very well, so I would really encourage you to take a refresher on highest and best use. The second one would be look at replacement cost mm -hmm. on every deal you're doing. Because when you're wrestling with, is this cap rate too low? or you know, is this price per square foot too high? The answer to that question is replacement cost. Yeah. And if you look at those numbers, if you're putting up a building today, that building two years from now is gonna cost probably 15, 20 bucks a square foot more to build. Yeah. And you kind of have a self-insulating um, benefit and mitigation there. And then I think the, the third thing is you do need to pay attention to the fundamentals. 
I don't think it's a one, two, or three year period away that we overbuild, but we will overdo it. <laughs> we'll go to 500 million square feet of e-commerce warehouse, mm -hmm. and it'll be led by those, those guys in Texas. Dallas is number one in the latest Collier's report, most amount of new construction. Um, and as we go vertical, we're gonna find new ways to justify the performance. So really, really go back and challenge those old school techniques, replacement costs, highest and best use. Stay in touch with your lenders. What's going on in the banking industry really concerns me, whether it's the consolidation, what they're, you know, they're, they're laying off jobs, they're automating everything to artificial intelligence. So your ability to have a credit relationship is going away. You're gonna only find that in a smaller or maybe a smaller regional bank, mm -hmm. but the top 10 or whatever, 15 banks, it's all automated, artificial intelligence, credit underwriting, credit scoring, computer will spit out an answer. So build those, build diversity in your credit relationships for debt and equity. Yep. Good advice, Casey. Good information as usual. Thank you for yep. uh, joining us here in Thanks. Studio One. I appreciate it. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Stay with us. Are you involved in the multifamily industry? Check out RedIQ.com. You can easily and effectively turn operating data into actionable intelligence. Request a demo or try it for free at RedIQ.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. And today we are talking industrial real estate, which has become more of an exciting sector all the time. It's like the new retail. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. is the ultimate cloud-based training for commercial agents. Check it out at CommercialAgentSuccess.com. My guest is Larry Callahan. He's CEO of Patillo Industrial Real Estate, and Larry's joining us in Studio One. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Glad to be here, Michael. Well, I always enjoyed talking to you. You guys uh, own and control and build a lot of industrial properties uh, for a long time, and, and I know you get a chance to, to make big decisions uh, with tenants and, and companies that are, that are using space and, and watch the market in a big way. And, one of the big things in the news lately has been the, these tariffs, and it's impacting the stock market. And I'm curious, as you're dealing with uh, tenants' decisions and things today, is it impacting business in any way? Well, I think it's a very noteworthy thing, and it's mm -hmm. been a concern on the horizon because we've been you know, threatening tariffs uh, for a long time, and now we've started imposing them. Uh, it was just last week we had uh, the, the threat of another 10% tariff on another $300 billion worth of Chinese imports. So effectively, we'd be taxing uh, every Chinese import at that point. So um, it's noteworthy and it can disrupt people's planning process. Mm -hmm. um, real estate decisions are all about confidence and uh, they're big decisions for companies. And um, uncertainty uh, is something that slows down that decision-making process. And, and tariffs, the threats of tariffs and the actual imposition of tariffs does affect people. And it affects also with the retaliation that comes because people that are here, farmers in particular, uh, are, are impacted when uh, suddenly China responds by imposing tariffs on their business and suddenly they're shut out of a market that had become very important to us. But in terms of how it impacts people, this next round hadn't gone into effect. It could be threatened, and then they could decide, hey, we've made progress. Uh, we're not going to impose it. And that would be great. But the uncertainty about that starts affecting people, particularly people in retail, because this next round is, is affecting 
consumer goods like handhelds and laptops and clothing and things like that. And it, it's the imposition is supposed to be September 1st. And September 1st is right in the peak of the ordering season to build up the inventory for year end for retail. So it affects people and, and it affects them negatively. <laughs> it, it's, there's a lot of talk about who pays tariffs. Well, you know, th there's a lot of rounds of, uh, of, of response and implications when tariffs are imposed. But the first round is you've got an order placed and it's coming your way and you've got to pay 10% more for that order. I mean, that hurts, and it hurts American companies or anybody based here, whether it's an American company or a foreign company that is importing parts or, or products that they're going to sell. So they now cost 10% more. So one of two things happens. Either they make a little less money because they paid that, or they increase the price to the consumer. So hard to come up with what's good about that. Yeah. <laughs> so. And as that impacts uh, consumers uh, buying uh, retail goods, it, it has a ripple effect, right, on the retail uh, tenants and, and then on the online orders and things that uh, affect uh, industrial, both in-store and uh, online affects industrial. And then also you have the, the stock market. That's uh, like the, what's going on with, uh, with this. So is, are you also, as you're talking to major tenants making big decisions, real estate decisions, uh, how much does the market impact them? Well, they pay attention to what, what yeah. their stock is doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yesterday uh, was, was not a good day. It was the biggest drop that we've had this year. And, um, you know, most of this year we've been talking about would the Federal Reserve lower interest rates? And, uh, you know, last week the answer was yes, they lowered interest rates. It was a quarter point. Um, and there was hardly any reaction in the market because it expected it. And then the next thing that happened was more tariffs get imposed. So it kind of, we've forgotten about the, the Fed uh, and we focused on tariffs. And you know, drops of that nature do affect people. Um, and and it, it, the other way of looking at this, because uh, I don't want to think about just the negatives related to imposition of tariffs, is it's possible that we go through this and we do come to a global trade um, agreement with China that addresses intellectual property, which is really one of the things that we're trying to address is protection of intellectual property rights. Um, we had similar battles with Japan back in the 1960s and 70s, and that came around and ultimately they started uh, dealing with intellectual property like the rest of the world was, and that was good for trade relations and good for the, the relationship between the countries. The same thing could happen with China is that ultimately these kinds of pressures are put on and it, we get a global resolution and then everybody drops the tariffs back and then we're in a better world. So that would be great if that happens. And how much of the business world uh, might look at this as short-term pain for long-term gain? Well, um, it, it depends on how badly you're getting hurt <laughs> yeah, right. Right. while you're going through this. Uh, anyway, it's, we can focus on American companies and how American companies impact somebody like Boeing mm -hmm. has suppliers all over the world and they're building airplanes here, bringing them in from all over. So as tariffs are imposed, you know, they're just paying more for those, those products. So, you know, it's, it, it's possible they look at that and then they say, okay, then if we get to a regime in the not too distant future where everybody drops tariffs back again, we're actually better off. So I, I don't know, it's, it's hard and the same is true for a foreign company that's sitting here. You can look at a BMW. 
you know, BMW is their largest production factory in the world is in Greenville Spartanburg, South Carolina, Greer to be precise. Um, and they're importing parts from all over the world. So it affects that foreign company and their investment here, and it affects US-based companies. So it just changes where things are, and there's not an immediate substitute for most products. If you're bringing in and you have set up the supply chain to get a personal computer built mm -hmm. in China, and suddenly the extra tariff applies to that, you can't immediately go to Vietnam or you know New Zealand or someplace else and get it built. You've got to set up that whole supply chain and whole factory system. So these tariffs do have pain, yeah. you know. So it, and then will it all resolve in the long run? I don't know. I know this. My personal belief is that I've been arguing that tariffs are a concern because they throw too much uncertainty in the in the air. Mm -hmm. So I hope that we get through this period relatively quickly. If we do, we could get to a better world. And you mentioned um, interest rate reduction, the Fed lowering the rate a quarter point. Um, have you seen that impact your decisions to either build, uh, refinance, sell, or any tenant decisions yet? Well, I think it was a very noteworthy. The quarter point is not that much money if yeah. you really think about it. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of talk that they'd like to see a half a point. Uh, so, but but the thing that's so significant about it is it's a signal that it's an inflection point. It was the first time in 10 years the Federal Reserve has lowered interest rates. And it's a signal not just to our country but around the world that we may be going from a period where we were raising rates and tightening things and increasing the cost to people in real estate into a period of time where it actually starts going in the other direction. And there's a lot of reason to believe that we actually will have a period of time where we're going to be more accommodative. Uh, I think the rest of the world is in the same boat, most of the rest of the world is in the same boat with us where we've had a target expressed of 2% inflation. You know, the Federal Reserve used to just say we want um, you know, stable prices, but in recent years they've gotten very specific about it. We want 2% inflation. Well, we haven't had it. We haven't been, been getting 2%. We've been getting like a percent and a half since about the year 2000. That's been roughly what we've been dealing with. So uh, if, in fact, you want to get 2%, that's going to mean that you actually have to loosen because we haven't been getting it. So a little bit looser money, a little bit lower interest rates, a little bit more availability of money, that is going to have a tendency to help real estate and it's gonna help all the investments that are here. The concern that you have to have when you see the Federal Reserve raising interest rates six or seven times, your concern is that it might keep going in that direction. Mm -hmm. And you could end up with um, you know, interest rates stopped at five, six, seven percent. Well, then if you've been operating your real estate company and doing leases, assuming that you're gonna get a, say, seven percent return, and then all of a sudden interest rates are up at five, six, seven percent, that's not good for your business. <laughs> but if it's you've been putting your cards on the table and getting lease commitments at a certain rate, and then the cost of money starts declining, that's actually quite good for you. Yeah. So, and I think that's the world that we're more likely than not to be in.
And of course, you're getting good demand uh, for your industrial properties, right? You said you're building more spec uh, at Patella than you have ever done, right? Uh, spec and build suit right now. The most yeah. we got the highest activity level that we've ever had. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's spread around. It's uh, mm -hmm. um, you know we are only building in what we consider outperform markets, places that we think are growing faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, for specific reasons. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are very actively building right now. We realize that we're you know, 10 years into uh, expansion cycle, but demand for industrial space is strong. Uh, the buildings that we're putting up are attracting uh, good quality customers mm -hmm. uh, very quickly. Uh, and you know, we feel very good about the market. Uh, the, the economics that we are seeing, um, we've had more pricing power uh, as an owner of real estate than we've had in a long time. Yeah. So uh, it, it helps that the markets that we're in um, have very high occupancy rates yeah. and, and rates have been pushing up. And one of the things that uh, is in the news and everybody keeps hearing about is uh, last mile delivery. Right, and you're, so you're in the, in really deep in the industrial real estate world. What do you really see in there? Well, you know, for, for the last couple of years, uh, especially older buildings, smaller buildings, lower roofs and, and things, everybody referred to them as last mile facilities. And uh, it, the, the last mile equation of how to deliver uh, goods that have been ordered on the internet has not truly been solved, but everybody's referring to these as last mile facilities. I think we are now starting to see the early stages of how people are gonna handle the logistics of last mile. And it's all driven by the desire that people have to click on something and get it show up at your house mm -hmm. three hours later or a day later, mm -hmm. but certainly not a week later. Everybody is demanding faster and faster. And Amazon in particular is pushing to try to get as much as they can delivered within a day. Well, if you think about that as that's what delights the customer, and then you start working back to how do you do that? Well, you have to do things to make sure that the products that they're ordering, even before they order them, are already pre-staged close to where they are. Then you have to figure out how to quickly get it out the door once it is ordered. And you know, the last mile delivery has not been uh, thousands and thousands of small buildings with these products in it. It's been large distribution centers, and then they hand it to um, you know, DHL or FedEx or UPS or the post office to make the last mile delivery. Well, now more and more, you know, they're using other mechanisms like, you know, the other people that are in this game, like like Walmart, are uh, they have stores and, and their stores are part of their delivery system. You can click on something and go to your local Walmart and pick it up. So that's a that's part of the delivery system. You effectively become the last mile delivery. You go get it yourself. Right. Uh, so that's one thing that's happening. But um, Amazon is more and more pushing into the delivery business themselves. Uh, you know, it's, uh, they are one of the larger customers of UPS, and I don't know about you, but those boxes show up on my door <laughs> on a fairly regular basis. Um, but, um, you know, in many respects, uh, Amazon, to try to control the process themselves, they are pushing big into their own delivery processes. You're seeing right now white vans show up that don't have any markings on them at all, and, and they're delivering for Amazon. Uh, and a lot of those are independent businesses that Amazon has 
pushed hard to get people to get started. Mm -hmm. They want droves of people to be out there helping them deliver. So uh, it's a big shift that's going on, and it's affecting lots of things. It's affecting almost every type of real estate. As you're designing anything today, you got to think about where will the boxes be delivered, whether it's an office building or residential building, apartment buildings, whatever it is. Where will the boxes be delivered, and how will you keep them secure? Yeah. So, and, and like you said, some of these retail properties are becoming last mile distribution, rather they're existing retail and distribution, or just completely turned into last mile delivery, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. the, it, even uh, uh, shopping centers, there were more shopping centers. The United States had more shopping centers than any other country in the world per square foot per person. And we obviously dropped back down uh, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so when it all started coming back, um, it was filled up with different types of things, more service-oriented, more restaurants and that kind of thing. But some of these things are being converted into last-mile delivery services. And you know, sometimes they can use the existing building, sometimes they rip it down and start over again. Uh, but whole malls have been you know, turned into um, you know, retail delivery services. Uh, so. It's, it, it's a world that's changing, and the characteristic that's most noteworthy about that is that retail was always trying to go where the housetops are. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where Amazon needs to be to make that last delivery, Yeah, Amazon or anybody else. Well, Larry, what would you leave our audience with related to the future of industrial real estate uh, values, cap rates, and, and of, of future interest rate uh, adjustments? Well, um, I think, I don't think we're going to see you know, the race back to zero on interest rates, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think we're in a tightening phase anymore. I think we have shifted gears toward a loosening phase, and I think that's actually good uh, for industrial real estate and for every other type of real estate. Uh, I think it's good for the economy. I think uh, there was a deflationary shock that ran through the U.S. and the international economy because of what the Federal Reserve did in tightening in the last year or so. They probably went too far as evidenced by the fact that they just backed up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know that we're about to you know, race down to zero like we did in 2008, but I think from an interest rate perspective, we are in a stable to declining interest rate environment for some period of time. And I think that's gonna be accommodative and it's gonna be good for, uh, for real estate. Uh, the future of industrial real estate, the present of industrial real estate is good. Yeah. You know, if this was a state of the economy or state of the union, and we're talking about industrial, I'd say that these are very good times. Fundamentally, it's good times. There's strong demand. The wind beneath our wings continues to be e-commerce. Uh, that shift uh, is likely to continue even in a downturn. So um, it's a good time, and I, and I think I would say the industry in general, from the bankers to the developers, should be commended for not overbuilding during this cycle. And yeah. we've been going for 10 years, and you're not hearing people say, wow, the problem that's gonna cause a recession is that developers have all overbuilt. They've been keeping up with demand, and demand and, 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 and new construction have been very much in line yeah. through this whole cycle. And that's good to see in industrial, and that's yeah. good to see in, in most every sector, in most cities that we've seen around. So, 
Larry, good information as usual. Thank you for joining us, sir. Well, glad to be here. All right. Thank and thank you for joining us around the country or around the world. We appreciate you being with us. Hey, I appreciate you sharing the show. Connect with us, if you will, on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, uh, wherever uh, you uh, watch the show. And thanks for commenting and sharing. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies, incredible training for commercial agents. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Red IQ, turning multifamily data into actionable intelligence. Visit RedIQ.com.